All right, folks. Not all of it. I said the flow of what's happening. I hope that uh, after this morning's session that uh, you can see that the Holy Spirit is not just a person. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful person. That's why you call Jesus wonderful. Uh, in the Sunday school class, we've been in Luke. And uh, I don't know. You know. I can't speak for those that have been sitting under Luke, but uh, Luke is a picture of Jesus. Uh, Luke tells the, each of the Gospels emphasize a different aspect or role about Jesus. Matthew uh, emphasizes the kingship, the king, Jesus the king. Mark is Jesus the servant. Uh, Luke is Jesus the man. And John is Jesus the God. Um uh, in Ezekiel, the seraphim or cherubim who appeared in Ezekiel 1 had four faces. The face of a lion, the face of an eagle, the face of an ox, and the face of a man. Those are pictures of the Gospels. The lion is king. The ox is servant. The man is, of course, human man. And the eagle is God. You'll see those same cherubim with the four faces in Revelation. Four. Uh, it's a little bit different, but you see the same, and those are those are actually... Now, is that intended that way in Ezekiel? I'm not able to tell you that, but it works out that way. We've been studying Luke, and some of the y'all in the Sunday school class know this, because it's a picture of Jesus the man. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Gospels do not separate the Incarnation at all. I mean, he's clearly God in Luke as well, but the emphasis is on Jesus the man. <clears throat> and the more you get down to seeing it, you see what a wonderful man he is. I mean, he's in absolute control of everything, even on the cross, even in front of the Sanhedrin on trial. And the secret of his control is humility. He never responds to people the way they act to him. He, he always responds and that's how you maintain control. If somebody comes after you, offends you, and you respond in like kind, then they've taken control. But when you respond with humility, you maintain control. And that's what he does. All the, right up until the cross, and on the cross, he maintains that control. And then he hands his spirit to the Father, and he takes control. So it's, it's something. Um, anyway, let's pray as we go into this afternoon session. Father, thank you for this morning. And we ask that as we go further into this, that you will continue to answer the prayer, that it is not simply information that we are acquiring, but we really want to know you. And we really want your spirit to be poured out upon us. Lord, uh, we acknowledge that the Spirit does according to what He wills, but we can appeal to Him, and we can ask that He would will to display Himself in greater depth to us this afternoon. And Lord, above everything else, we really do want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And we ask again that these things would be uh, done by your spirit. You would control the discussion and the, the lesson. And we ask it for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this afternoon we want to look at two aspects. Um, first of all, the way in which the Spirit manifested himself in the ministry of Jesus when he was on earth. Uh, and that's very significant for us because Jesus is a pattern of the way the Holy Spirit will work through us, uh, his children. Uh, and so what you see happening uh, in Jesus, uh, you will see happening in us. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the things that I do, he will do. And greater things than these will he do. Because he's the pattern for us. Now, he's not the pattern for us of redemption because we can't save ourselves. Amen. But in terms of the uh, uh, walking in the power of the Spirit and ministry, he's the pattern. Uh, and so it's important to notice how the Holy Spirit functions. Um, Jesus, uh, we are told by the <coughs> Apostle Paul, chose to empty himself. He was God and he chose uh, to empty himself and take on uh, flesh. What's interesting is, yeah, Susan. Well, before you go into that, not to rabbit trail you, but I want to rabbit trail you. <coughs> go, because, I mean, what you do a little bit, expand upon that greater thing. Oh, greater thing? Greater thing. Uh, I think you get into uh, what Paul said in Ephesians 3.20. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we may ask or think, mm -hmm. um, according to the power at work in us. Um, greater things in the sense, greater things than Jesus did, no, but able to do much more of it. Um, a lot bigger area. Yeah, know, we we because we're the Holy Spirit's in all of us, right. and we can do it here and over yonder. And when Jesus was here, he's going to do it right here. Right, and that's why he sent the twelve out, and then later sent the seventy out. He was expand. He gave them the same abilities because he was wanting to expand the ministry. Uh, the church is called to the world, yes, and to display Christ to the world. Of course, the enemy's desire is to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. And there are a number of ways he does that. Sin in the church, uh, divisions, uh, you know, unity uh, in the church. If you look at Acts, the church was of one heart and one mind in Acts. And Satan's immediate attacks, beginning in chapter 4, is to attack the unity of the church. First he attacks from the outside. Mm -hmm. Then he tries Ananias and Sapphira. But every time the church did something, it was like a nuclear explosion in the kingdom of darkness. And he understood immediately that the secret behind it was unity. See? And so his, he immediately began starting to divide. And you see that all the way through Acts. He is hitting from the outside with persecution, but dividing with divisiveness and sin and lying and all that sort of thing inside to try to divide them. Yeah. That helps. yeah, but the greater things come about when you have a church walking in unity in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank the, you. The enemy knows that. Yes. I wish we did. Mm -hmm. we but we get into the course on spiritual warfare mm -hmm. 
in Grace University will get into that because the Christian life is, in a sense, spiritual warfare. Yes. It's not just throwing out demons. It is living the life that reflects the life of Jesus in a culture that is dominated by Satan. Yes. That is spiritual warfare. Look at 1 John. Five, nineteen. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil. All right, there's a statement of true spiritual warfare right there. And Jesus says, "And the gates of hell will not prevail against it." Uh, we'll get into it a little bit with Ephesians three ten, but we'll get to that in a minute. One of the most mysterious verses, I think, in the New Testament. But God is saying to Satan, I'm going to beat you through my people. Yes. Satan knows God can beat him. But, Satan, but God says, I'm going to beat you through my people too. Because you know, I've given them authority over you. Come on. You know, so, <laughs> anyway. All right. Woo. Okay. Yeah, two thumbs up. <laughs> what, what you have, if you look at Genesis 1, um, you will notice that there is a creation pattern uh, where God says, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. And there was, and there was, and there was, and there was. And then you get to Genesis 1.26, and there is a pause. It's like there is a council in heaven. And God doesn't say, let there be, let there be. He doesn't say, let there be man. He says, let us make man in our image and give him authority over everything. Uh, somewhere there was a decision within the triune God that the Son of God would become flesh and redeem us. Because when did God not know what was going to happen? So there was a decision made. Is there chronology in eternity? Yeah, I think so. But there's no time. So this is, this is beyond our little minds <laughs> to grasp. I'm not trying to tell you I got a grasp on this. I don't. You start talking eternity, I'm in trouble. But there is this pause. And I suspect in this pause, there is this understanding from Isaiah 46.10. I called the end from the beginning. Mm -hmm. an understanding of all that will be and the God the Son agreeing to take on flesh for the purpose of redemption. What we were saying during the break is, is that God set up government to contain evil and to provide order while he brought about the plan of redemption. Right. You know, government keeps forgetting that that's its only job. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's what he did. Now, what we get in Philippians 2 is a description of the manner <coughs> by which that happened. Paul says, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. Now, what that means is, form of God means that he was. He was 
God the Son, He was fully equal, eternal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. They were all the same. He wasn't lesser. You know, in the in the pagan religions, you have these various gods, and they all have different jobs, and to more or less extent, have different powers. You know, man would never come up with this. They are fully equal in everything, co-eternal, infinite, immutable, transcendent, incomprehensible but knowable, uh, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy, love, all of these things, they are all of these things equally. One is not more so than the other. Okay. That's what it means when it says form of God. Uh, who also, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, and here he says it, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. In other words, to hold on to. He was willing to relinquish this. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And you want a picture of the extent of that, go read Hebrews 1. So that at the name of Jesus, every, name, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Uh, now, look over in John. We've said, seen what Paul has to say about it. Look over in John 1. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that, was not, that has not come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace uh, and truth. So what we're getting here, when you read these together, and particularly Philippians 2, is Jesus laid aside his, <coughs> excuse me, his divine... Mm, what did I do with my other... Well, I'll get some more. Laid aside his divine prerogatives. What do I mean by that? Not his attributes but his ability to do as he chose as, one, as a member of the Trinity. What he did is he chose to lay that aside and take on flesh and walk in absolute submission to the Father. Um, there's no reason to do that. And you notice it says, through him all things were made. Nothing's been made that wasn't made through him. You can get the same thing in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. 
for all things were made through him, whether powers or authorities, visible or invisible. Everything that was made was made for him you know, yes. and through him. Uh, but he is an incarnation. It's a very important thing to understand. He is fully God, fully man. He is not half God, half man, part God, part man. He is 100% God and 100% man. And we cannot get a handle on it intellectually. It's just impossible to understand that. Any more than we can understand the Trinity or anything else. And I'm glad we can't. But the cults invariably get into trouble because they try to make the distinctions. They try to figure it out. And what happens is they wind up either diminishing his divinity or his deity or diminishing his humanity. And then you've got the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they all say he's not God. You know, the Mormons, uh, you know, when the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, I welcome them. Because when I see them out there in the dry, in the going up and down the yards, I get my Bible and get out on the front porch and wait for them. Because how many people come to your door want to talk spiritual matters? You know, but you ask them, you know, is Jesus the Son of God? Oh, yes. Okay. Is he God the Son? Oh, no. You know, they play weasel words, uh, but they don't believe in the deity of Christ. Uh, but Jesus is fully God, fully man. None of us pre-existed ourselves. Jesus pre-existed. Jesus existed before he was born uh, in a stable in Bethlehem. John the Baptist says in John 1.30, he existed before me. John, what do you mean by that? You were born six months before he was, according to Luke. Mm -hmm. He existed before. We didn't. <laughs> There's tremendous differences uh, between us. But he is fully God, fully man. But what he chose to do is he chose to give up his divine prerogatives. In other words, the ability to do things as God. But he's still God. Don't misunderstand me. And as a man, to walk in absolute obedience and submission to the Father. And the manner in which he accomplished the th miracles that we see happening is by the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is actively involved in redemption, in the whole thing. When he heals, he's not healing uh, as God. He is a man through whom the Holy Spirit is healing. You with me? Okay. Now, um, that that's primarily the way it, it was working. Um, he um, uh, he referred to himself as the Son of Man, and he did not hesitate to acknowledge he was God. He never did hesitate to acknowledge. You know, in uh, John eight fifty seven. 58 in that area you know he's talking about Abraham he's arguing with the Jews he says Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and the Jews said you're not 50 are you saying uh, that you knew Abraham and Jesus says before Abraham was I am what did they do they took up stones why they saw he was black they knew what he was saying you know when he stood before and this one I really like People are always saying, well, he never called himself God. He said he was the Son of Man. He always said he was the Son of Man. Yeah, well, when he stood before the Sanhedrin, hmm. incidentally, they broke every rule in the book when they tried 
They broke their own procedure completely. The high priest came out the desk, which was totally improper under Jewish law, and said, I adjure you by the living God, are you the Son of God? And he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. He is quoting from Daniel 17, 7, 13, and 14, where Daniel says, I saw one like a son of man coming in the clouds, and he approached the throne of the Ancient of Days, and he was given authority and dominion that will last through eternity. So it turns out the Son of Man is a, day, a term of deity after all. But they didn't get it until he said that. And when he said that, then they convicted him of blasphemy. Because the term Son of Man in that context is a term of deity. Uh, incidentally, you want to know what, if you look at uh, Acts uh, 1, 9, 10, and 11, the ascension. And there, he's standing there on the Mount of Olives and he rises into the air and a cloud hides him out of their sight. That's the ascension from our perspective. You want to know what the ascension looked like after that? From God's perspective, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw one coming in the clouds, the same cloud that hit him out of his sight in Acts 1. I saw one coming in the clouds like a son of man, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was given a kingdom and authority and honor. The two together are the ascension. Uh, and, uh, you know, he but he came as man. Why did he take on flesh? Because he could not bear our sins except as a man. God didn't die. He couldn't pay that penalty. He had to do so as a man. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. Why did he come as God? Because we couldn't possibly have dealt with the devil. Uh, I mean, he had to be able to do that. We, we couldn't. This is one of the most wonderful amazing mysteries of all history. And the angels are still puzzled and gaga over it. Uh, they just can't grasp it. And when you stop and think about it, it's hard to grasp. Uh, he took our sin as man and paid our penalty and suffered not just physical death but spiritual death when the Father turned his back on him. Not because he was abandoning him, but that's the price of sin. Eternal death. And he tasted that for us. So now we don't have that problem. On top of that, he was not under Satan's authority because Satan has authority over all who sin. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. And he says that in, in John um, 14. John where is that? John 14. Yeah, John 14, about 30. He says, the ruler of this world comes, but he has nothing in me. Meaning, I'm not under his jurisdiction. I'm not under his authority. Why? Because he hasn't sinned. Now here's what's happened. Because we were held captive to the devil because of our sin. And we were also subject to eternal death. Because he took the sin... It's paid for. Not only that, but being raised up with him because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, we now have authority over the devil in Christ. 
We were under his heel for millennia, but now he's under us. Anyway, we'll get to that. In a that's, I, that's why Paul can never talk about this for very long in the epistles without breaking into a talk song. Yeah, now to him who is able to do it. See, he, just, he just can't talk about it without getting into it. And if we really grasp what's going on here, we couldn't either. Huh? Yeah. You do a cheer. Yeah, you want to <laughs> jump up and down. That's yeah. what I wasn't, so I do a cheer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, what we want to do, and so what? One of the values of this, in the way that it works, is that God. I want to suggest to you, there's at least three, and there's more than this, but I want to suggest there's at least three things that God is demonstrating through this, and one is he is wanting to demonstrate the intended relationship that God had in mind from the beginning between him and Adam. Yes. And in, in the garden, he wanted intimate communion in the Holy Spirit with us. That was the lie of the devil was, you know, you violate God's law and you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Boy, did we buy into a sucker play. <laughs> we would have had God in us. We would have been containers of him. That's what he made us for. So th that was baloney. But also, the purpose of this is, in addition to everything we've just said, another purpose is to demonstrate the relationship that we will have as redeemed men and women before God in the Holy Spirit, what we see Jesus doing. And then it's to show also the wisdom of God's plan in that redeemed men and women dependent on God uh, for the Holy Spirit to work through us would be able to utterly and absolutely defeat Satan. And that's what's so frustrating to Satan because we're weak little creatures compared to him. Look at Ephesians 3.10. Let's start with verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And what is that? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Yes. To who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I am going to conquer you. I am going to destroy you. I am going to do so through the church. Who is the church? Redeemed men and women who are walking as Jesus did in obedience and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And even though they're fallible and Jesus wasn't, even so I'm still going to defeat you through them. Uh, because see, here's the thing. God created the heavens and the earth and he said it is all very good. And Satan loused it all up and God is not going to say, oh well, so much for that, I'll try another day. He's not going to do that. He is not going to let him prevail. It isn't going to happen. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get an insight into the eternal purpose. In whom we have boldness and confidence through him, through faith in him. See, we have access to him. You know, 
through faith in Him. And Jesus is demonstrating all this in the Gospels for us. So, and if you've read the last part of the book, you know that the Lamb wins at the end. And it's okay to turn over and read the last chapter. Okay. All right. Now what empowered Jesus to do His ministry was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in Luke 3. Uh, for example, at the time of His baptism, verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him bodily, form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son. In You I am well pleased. Uh, and so what you have here is you have the total the Trinity together, the Father declaring uh, his, who the Son is, the Son Himself, and the Holy Spirit descending on Him. Why is the Holy Spirit descending on Him? Because it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit that's going to give Him the power yes. to do all the things that we see that are going to happen from here on. You will see then in Luke 4, beginning in verse 1, that it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, entered into the wilderness and was tempted in all ways by the devil. Tempted in many ways. And then in verse 14 of Luke 4, you'll see that after that, Jesus came out of the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so always there is this connection between Jesus and what He does and the Holy Spirit. Uh, filling Him, empowering Him, moving upon Him. Let's look real quick um, at the temptations. Uh, look at Luke 4. It says in verse 2 that he was tempted by the devil for 40 days, uh, and he ate nothing, and when they, when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now what we've got here uh, is three things, and Matthew reports the same thing, but he inverts it a little bit. Luke says the temptation was tell the stone to become bread, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and said, I'll give you this if you worship me, throw yourself off the temple. Matthew says, he said, turn the stone into bread, takes him to the top of the temple, says, throw yourself off, the angels will bear you up, and then says, the third temptation is, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you fall down and worship me. Again, same thing, but a little different. That's what enhances the credibility. They're not copying each other. So what he says is in the first temptation is, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, what is the temptation? Uh, the temptations that Satan brought against Eve are described in 1 John 2, 15. For the uh, love of the world is manifested in the, the, love, let's see, the love of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. And you see that very thing in Genesis 3. When she saw that the fruit was pleasant uh, and for wisdom, uh, she took it and ate. In other words, something to eat, flesh, saw that it was pleasant, wisdom, boastful pride of life. 
the three temptations that are representative. This is not all the temptations that went on in the wilderness. These are merely representative. But those three each deal with lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and boastful pride of life. Lust of the flesh. He's hungry. He hasn't eaten anything in 40 days. So he says, if you are the Son of God. Now that could be translated since you are the Son of God. So the vehicle for the temptation is the flesh. He's hungry. But that's not the goal of the temptation. The goal of the temptation is to get him to exercise his prerogative as God. Remember? He laid aside his prerogatives, divine prerogatives. The goal is to get him to function as God exercising his divine prerogatives, which he expressly laid aside. He didn't come to rescue us as God. He came to rescue us as man. There is a temptation that is being brought against the very point of the atonement here. You with me? Yes. Mm-hmm. If you're the son of God, right? Mm-hmm. He knows who he is. <laughs> Jesus knows he knows who he is. We all know you know we know who he is. <laughs> if you're the son of God, turn the stone into bread. In other words, never mind what the Father wants, you do it, because you can. So he's trying to get him to exercise divine prerogative. How does Jesus respond to him? It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Remember why we said he came and how he came? He is restating that purpose to me. I have put aside divine prerogative, and I am walking in obedience to the Father. He is restating what we just said. Okay? All right, so the enemy comes in, and, uh, and I like this in Matthew. Uh, he says, uh, well, he takes him to the highest point of the temple, and he says, now throw yourself off, and the angels will bear you up. And Jesus' response is, uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, what, I, what you want to watch about Satan here is, Satan, Jesus says in the first temptation, for it is written, man shall live, not live by bread alone. Satan says, ha ha, you want to quote scripture? I can quote scripture. Mm -hmm. Then he quotes scripture on the top of the temple. What's interesting here is that some rabbis theorized in the period of time before Jesus came that when the Messiah came, he would do exactly that. He would stand at the top of the temple and throw himself off and be borne up by the angels. And so here is a temptation of, this will fit just what the rabbi said. See? You can see what happens when the rabbis see him casting out the demon of muteness. That didn't do any good. And Satan quotes where? Where does Satan quote from? Man. Psalms. The angels will bear you up. Psalm 91. The angels will bear you up. Jesus always quotes out of Deuteronomy. The the devil's quoting out of Psalms. Okay, what's interesting there is we've succumbed to that temptation all the time. If you really got faith, you'll step out in faith and do this thing. That's what he's saying to Jesus. You got faith? Step off the temple. Angels will bear you up. Now, if if you're really going to follow God, you need to step out in faith. Not unless God has told you to. 
And people do it all the time. Oh, well, I'm just stepping out in faith. Yeah. Not unless God has told you to. We don't do things independently. You know? And people fall for that one all the time. In other words, it's jump off the roof and yell at God, catch me! Busy! <laughs> okay, and then of course the final one was um, take him up on the mountain and show him all the and this is where Satan's really coming. I'll give you all this. If you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, it is written. You shall worship God alone. And we fall for that one too. All the time. But, you know, in essence, Jesus is saying, you give that to me. That's dust. That's all coming away. Coming apart. I'm, in fact, I'm the one that's going to blow it apart. You, you want me? You want to give me that? That's nothing. But we fall for it all the time because we don't have the eternal perspective. You know, we don't see it. You know, follow me and I'll make you CEO of General Motors. Yeah. You know, it's all going to fail. Uh, but we fall for it anyway. He comes out in the power uh, of the Spirit. Incidentally, folks, the demons, and you'll notice this. The demons, and Satan started the pattern with the temptation, the demons never will acknowledge him as son of man. They always call him son of God. Why? Because God defeated them before the foundation of the earth. When Satan rebelled, God cast them out. God defeated them. They don't mind admitting that. Notice any time Jesus confronts demons, how do they call him? Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High God. Mm -hmm. you know, and Most High God, incidentally, is a demonic term for God. It implies there are other gods. God just happens to be the highest. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the demon in the synagogue in, in uh, Capernaum in Luke 4. What do you have to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Mm -hmm. uh, the demoniac. Jesus, why are you torturing me, Son of God? You know, they, 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 it says in the end of Luke there, uh, Luke 4 that he was casting they were bringing this demon possessed to him and they were casting him out demons and they were coming out crying you are the son of God you are the son and he would rebuke them and tell them to be quiet right, right. You know? uh, but they acknowledge he's God but they yes. will not acknowledge he's man right. why? because he defeated them as man yes. why does the blood of Jesus drive them up the wall? because it's a human quality yes. humans have blood it was the shedding of his human blood that defeated the enemy. So they will not acknowledge that he's the son of man. Look at 1 John 4. It's the test. Now there's more to it, 1 John 4, than I'm, I'm understanding this. There's more to this than what I'm saying here about it, but it does apply. Beloved, verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets are controlled by demonic forces. You go look at 1 Timothy 4, 1, uh, and you'll see that. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The devil will not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh because Jesus defeated him in the flesh and worse than that placed him under 
the authority of redeemed men and women in the flesh. <laughs> it's horrible. How would you like to be the boss over everybody? You get fired, now they're over you. <laughs> That's exactly what's happened here. Uh, three, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You know, they will not acknowledge it. I've, I've had it before. We were dealing with a woman one time who was the daughter of the high priest of Satan in Fort Worth. She told us she was a born-again believer. I was sitting next to her on the couch and I put my Bible next to her and, I, and she said, don't put that next to me. And I said, why not? I, it, 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 uh, it makes me nervous. The Bible makes you nervous. If the Bible makes you nervous, what does the blood of Jesus do for her? She screamed and came up out of that couch. Um, but I don't know how she got up because it was a cushy couch that you sink down into. But she came right up out of it. The devil will not accept that Jesus came in the flesh. The quickest and cults you can test them. They don't, you know, the attack is on the incarnation. They attack humanity, they attack deity, but they attack the incarnation. It drives them up the wall because it was the incarnation that conquered them and placed them under our authority. They just hate it. Uh, good. Yes. <laughs> you know, they just hate it all they want. Um, okay. Let's look at some examples of the Spirit. I want to uh, move him through Jesus. And I want to do that. We see him uh, healing, uh, casting out demons. Um, uh, look at Luke 5 real quick. Here's a very interesting phrase. Verse 5.17 One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of uh, the law sitting there, this is the episode that we talked about earlier, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now here's an interesting phrase. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. What does that mean? Jesus, don't you heal whenever you want to? Evidently not. <laughs> what is the power of the Lord? It's the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? As he wills. Haven't we seen that this morning? Okay. Jesus is in obedience to the Father. Now Jesus could do it. No question about it. But he's not doing that. He is in obedience to the Father. And, the, and when the Father says, I want to heal this one, bang, that's what happens. Um, the apostles were the same folks. Um, they didn't, you know, Peter and John with the cripple at the gate in John, in Acts 3. Um, what you know the cripple has been sitting there 40 years and he Peter and John stop and he think oh I've got one they're going to give me some they're going to give me a tax deductible donation <laughs> and Peter looks at him and says silver and gold I don't have but I'll give you what I've got in the name of Jesus rise why did they do that because the Holy Spirit had said I want to heal this one right. you know it's him that wills to do it yes. wasn't Peter and John's idea Oh, why don't we heal this one? No, the Holy Spirit gave him the commission. Tell him to rise up. You know, I don't know, however you put it. 
but we don't think of these things. He does that. Mm. I'm a little bit suspicious of advertisements I hear on the radio. Come, come to the Holy Spirit meeting Friday and get your gift from Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, get your baptism. Get get your healing from Jesus. Okay, but the Holy Spirit decides when and who He does that for. You don't tell the Holy Spirit He's going to heal all these people Friday. Now that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit won't be there, and that the Holy Spirit doesn't. But I'm, I question the value of making statements like that on the radio. It's the Holy Spirit's will to do these things or not. And if he says not, it ain't going to happen. Uh, and the apostles function in the same way. Jesus is, is doing this too. The power of the Lord is present for him to heal. In other words, the Father is giving a commission. We're going to do something here. Were you about to say something? Oh. Uh, all right. Oh, here's one that I really like. It's a very curious example. Now, this is old hat for the Sunday school because this is where we've been in Luke. Um, but look over here in Luke 8. Jesus comes back across the Sea of Galilee. There's a crowd waiting for him. Uh, uh, the ruler of the Pharisee, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, comes up. Guy, poor guy is desperate, falls at his feet, says, come, my daughter's dying, come heal her. Jesus said, I'll come. That's what I like about it. He always says, I'll come and heal her. You know, there's, there's no, well, I'll think about it. Or I'll pray for you. No, I'll come and heal her. They're going through the crowd. And it says, notice what it says. Um... I'm sorry, uh, Luke 8. Uh, uh, let's start with uh, 43. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. What do you mean, who touched me? Lots of people touched you what he's saying. Uh, But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell before him and declared in in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Uh, Why I like this is Jesus is not actively involved in this. Um, Jesus is going this way. She comes up behind him. He doesn't even see her coming. Uh, and she touches him, and bang, she's healed. Now, who sees her coming? The Holy Spirit sees her coming. Knows what she's going to do. Knows she has faith. How does she happen to have faith? He gave it to her. And Jesus is walking through the crowd, and, this, and he's consciously not involved in this at all. Because the Holy Spirit is doing healing. And he says, who touched me? And some people say, well, he knew he was trying to bring I don't think he did. I don't think Jesus played games. I don't think he knew who touched him. And she comes trembling up, and, and, and she's not condemned for it. In fact, she's commended. Well, why does he expose her? A couple of reasons. One, she was unclean in society with this flow of blood. And so she, he was making a public disclosure for the benefit, her benefit to everybody. This lady's clean. 
The second one is, I don't want you to get the idea that I wear magic clothes. I don't. Touching my, touching my, the fringe of my garment is not what healed you. Your faith is what healed you and the Holy Spirit responded. But clearly it's the Holy Spirit doing it. Because he wasn't actively involved. He didn't even consciously see her coming. He had his back to her. She came up behind him. I consider that very significant. Uh, in terms of the fact that it's the Holy Spirit working through him because that's what he was doing. Okay? Yes, ma'am. The NLT says on verse 46, but Jesus told him, no, someone deliberately touched me for I felt healing power go out from me. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Yeah, he felt, and I've I've told the Sunday school group this, I like, this is what I really like, and Mark tells the same story and says that she had spent 12 years trying to get well, spent all the money she had on physicians and they hadn't done her a bit of good. And Luke, who was a physician, left that one out. (laughs) I can testify to that. When I was at Stable, I had over 20 doctors in three states and they all said the same thing. There's nothing I can do for you. But the Lord touched me. That makes all the difference. And he didn't send you a bill either. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Luke, Luke himself was a physician. Right. So Luke just kind of dropped that little information. Left that with Mark, and yeah. know how much we will want to expose of ourselves and what we don't want to expose of ourselves. Okay. Um, other times uh, we see th- things uh, which says that uh, Jesus sometimes would know their thoughts. Now that is a characteristic of omniscience. I would suggest to you though that he is not exercising his divine prerogative. I would suggest to you that it is one of two things. Uh, Jesus was, uh, either the Holy Spirit was communicating that to him, or keep in mind that Jesus was a man without sin. And we use about four to eight percent of our brain capacity. Um, There's a very interesting book by uh, George Otis Jr. called The Twilight Labyrinth. And Labyrinth, and which he suggests that maybe based on things that we've seen, unique things in people down through the centuries, that there are, that Adam and Eve had abilities they lost when they sinned. And we see bits and pieces of it in people like savants, you know, who have the ability to calculate instantly. There were two twin brothers who were savants, and they dumped a box of matches out on the table, these big wooden matches, and they bounced all over the table. As soon as the last match fell out, both brothers said 111. And they counted them up as 111 matches. Uh, He's got a list on page 99 in that book. He's got a list of very well, things that might have been possible to Adam and Eve that they lost as a result of their sin. The ability to read thoughts is listed as one. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But there are people that seem to have that ability. Clairvoyance. Is it demonic? It might be. Uh, in human beings, it might be. Uh, the ability to communicate with animals. The ability to, uh, to do instant calculations. The ability to see long distances. Uh, the ability to transport themselves without, you know, just move over there. The, de- the devil does a lot of that stuff. Uh, did they have that ability? I don't know. Uh, some people 
down through the centuries have had some of that ability, not all of it together. It may be that Jesus, and this is pure speculation, so keep it at just that. Jesus was a man without sin, so his mind was not clouded and shut down like ours were after Adam and Eve sinned. He may have been able to do that just simply as a man. You notice at one point uh, in Mark 6, after feeding the 5,000, he sends them off in a boat, in, the disciples off in a boat across Cap, uh, Galilee. He's up on a high mountain praying. Mm-hmm. At 3 o'clock in the morning in the fourth watch, he looks out and sees them in the middle of the lake struggling against the wind. How can he do that at 3 in the morning when they're about 6 miles away? <laughs> no lights. And a lot of the things that he did, he may have been able, we just don't know, he may have been able to do because he was a man without sin and he didn't have the limitations that Adam and Eve fell into after they sinned. Well, Adam named all the animals and all that, you know. Yeah. He's what do you call that, Adam? I'm going to call it a cat. Why? Yeah. Well, it looks like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. He did. He and God together named the animals. Yeah. You know, he had tremendous abilities at categorization. There's no telling what they were capable of. Yeah. But it is speculation because the scripture doesn't tell us. Yeah. Why? It's not necessary for us to know. It's not important for us to know. But you could be seeing that. If not, what it is, it's the Holy Spirit doing it through him. Okay, we also seen, uh, we saw before Matthew 12, you know, casting out demons. Uh, he was able to drive out demons, he says in Matthew 12, by the Spirit of God. So he was doing that um, uh, through the Holy Spirit. Raising the dead. Did that by the Spirit of God outside of Lazarus' tomb. He is, notice that he doesn't say, Lazarus come out before he addresses the Father. You know? He says, Father, I'm, you know, he, he talks to God first. He doesn't say, hmm, I think I'll, I think I'll just raise Lazarus. No, he, says, he talks to his father first before he does that. Uh, the, his death and resurrection, Hebrews 9.14 was by the Spirit. Uh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from de- uh, dead works to serve the living God. Uh, move over to Romans 1 5. Verse 4 Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness? Jesus our Lord, so it was verse 4, not verse 5. We know from Luke uh, that the Spirit of of God was involved in the conception of Jesus. We already know that. Uh, We know from 1 Peter 3 also, uh, verses 17 and 18, that the Spirit of God was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Verse 17, for it is better... If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison. So from beginning to end, conception, 
not just grave, but resurrection, the Holy Spirit is involved with them. Okay. Now, what about us? This is the last part. Pray for me. My voice is about to give out. Of course, we could have silent prayer at that point. Jesus is our example. And we've already said that before. Uh, Luke 6.40 says that a student is not above his teacher, but when he has been fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Now that has a negative connotation. In other words, if you're trained by the wrong teacher, you'll be just like your teacher and just as wrong. But the positive is, if we are trained by the teacher who is Jesus, uh, we will be like him when we're fully trained. And that is God's plan, that we demonstrate uh, Jesus uh, in our lives. First uh, John 2, 6 says, uh, whoever claims to be in him must walk as he did. And if you look at First John uh, 5, 7, um, let's see, First John 4, 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. So what we are is not simply walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, but demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit as well as the power of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is that Jesus is developing in us is what we are. The power of the Spirit is what we do. Yes. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are what's called concatenated. In other words, if you have one, you have them all. If you think you demonstrate one, but you don't have the others, you don't have the one you think you're demonstrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have peace. Yeah, well, do you have goodness, patience, long time? Well, I'm not very patient. Well, then you don't have the peace you think you do. Because it's all, it's the characteristics of God. It's the Spirit. It's His characteristics. If you have that one, you've got them all. We don't have part of Jesus. We have all of them. So what He's doing is He is bringing those things to fruition to be revealed in us. All of them. So it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit regeneration of the Spirit in us and the baptism of the Holy Spirit of Him upon us is working both ways to do and to be. You with me? Yes. Okay. Don't separate those two. Paul says in Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord that which is in us and in the strength of His might that which comes upon us to do. They're always separating us. They're two different things. Strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that's when he goes in and says, and put on the whole armor of God. Because we war not against flesh and blood. So, okay. Now, um, this is the part that I've been waiting for. (laughs) To me, this is the part that gets exciting. Um, Because if Jesus was the pattern, then we should be able to see the pattern. And we should be able to see the pattern in Acts. And we do. Don't we? Uh, we see um, the continuation of the ministry of Jesus in Acts. Uh, we see them preaching the gospel, 
right? We see them healing. We see them casting out demons. We see them raising the dead. I'll give you some, you know, casting out demons. Acts 8, 7, 16. Uh, chapter 16, 16 through 18, raising the dead, Acts 9, 36 through 41. Uh, chapter 14, 19 through 20, where Paul himself is raised. Um, the boy that fell out of the third story window, uh, Eutychus, Acts 20. Now that now there's preaching. You put the guy to sleep and falls out the window. I, I, I dare say Paul had a duty to go down and raise him up. He killed him. He ought to raise him up. <laughs> Uh, preaching Acts 2, Pentecost, Acts 4, 30 through 31. All of those. All of that going on in Acts, we see that continually. They are continuing the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because they are now Jesus. The church is Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. Did it continue on after the first century, after the apostles died? It did. If you want to go look at the writings of the church fathers, you'll see that it did. Arrhenius in the 2nd century talked about how Christians would go from town to town. People would bring the sick and the demon-possessed in the town square. They'd heal them and cast out demons. That's 2nd century. Apostles are dead. Augustine, 4th century, talks about healing and the power of the Holy Spirit coming from it. It goes on and on. I can muster great evidence for you from before the Reformation of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the church even under the Catholic Church in its more corrupt form. We're not going to. We don't have the time. But um, look at the way this is to work. There is a difference between the Spirit dwelling in us and the Spirit coming upon us. Jesus said in John 14, the Spirit has been with you and He will be in you. All right. This is a very important distinction. The Spirit dwelling in you, He comes to dwell in you for the purpose of regeneration, for the purpose of you being born again. Look at, let's just look at John real quick. John 14, Jesus says, verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides. Now look look here, before the resurrection, before the crucifixion, abides with you. With you. Spirit of Jesus, uh, the, I mean the Holy Spirit, with those who are outside of Christ, abides with them. What is he doing? He's trying to bring them to repentance. Convict them of their sins. He is abiding with them. But if you die with the Spirit with you, only you're lost. Eternally. Notice what he says. Um, we're about to take a break. He abides with you, and look at the last phrase, and will be in you. Now when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, and when did that happen to the apostles? John 20, upper room. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Breathe is in the aorist tense in Greek, now and forever, once and for all. You just go, how do you like that? Interesting, I think, because when God in Genesis created Adam, it says he breathed the Spirit of life. Yes. When we are redeemed, 
He breathes on us mm -hmm. and says, receive the Holy Spirit, yes. which was what was originally intended. So the communication of it here is translated, is shown by worth worthy of breathing on. You know. uh, it is a picture of what happens. You're converted, the Holy Spirit comes into you. Um, look at 1 Corinthians. I do this with fear and trepidation because it's real easy to get confused here. 1 Corinthians 12. Um, 1 Corinthians 12. 12. Uh, let's see, am I right? Yeah, 13. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are made to drink of one Spirit. Now, it's using the word baptized, but it is not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is talking about regeneration, the Spirit dwelling in us. Um, the problem uh, is, is that people don't quite understand the word baptized, and they have to understand it in the context in which it's being used. Baptized means to be identified with. <laughs> Baptizo. I dip a white cloth into red, into red dye, pull it out, the cloth is baptized in the dye, the two have become one. It's baptizo. It's talking about identification. In verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, when it says baptized into the body, we have been identified with the body of Christ. Why are we identified with the body of Christ? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. That is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a statement that we have all been made to drink of one Spirit. We are baptized into the body by the Spirit. You with me? Yes. It's Jesus, though, that baptizes us with the Spirit. Yes. The Spirit baptizes us, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The Spirit baptizes us into the body. How? When He comes to live in us, bang, we become part of the body because we're identified with the body of Christ, the church. But when it's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, Jesus is the baptizer. Amen, amen. He baptizes us with the Spirit. We become identified with the power. Are you? Yes. Are we clear? Yes. Spirit living in you is regeneration. Spirit coming upon you, notice the difference, in, upon. Spirit coming upon is for the purpose of of empowerment, for boldness, yeah. for ministry, for witnessing. There are pictures of it in Romans 5.5, 5, and hope does not disappoint, for the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. That's a picture of the baptism, the Spirit coming upon us. Uh, Romans 8.16, for the Spirit of God testifies to us that we are children of God. That is a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Uh, it's been analogized in this way. Father and Son walking down the road together. Father holding the Son by the hand. Father knows the Son is His. Son knows the Father is His. That's regeneration. They are united. They are one. They're part of the family. Holy Spirit is in us. But the Father suddenly picks the Son up, grabs Him, hugs Him, says, I love you, Son. Son says, I love you, Father. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right. 
this incredible influx of love and joy, baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is possible to be regenerated, spirit dwelling in you, fully saved, but not have it come upon you. Two separate things. When does it happen? Doesn't. Can happen immediately. Can happen later. And it happens over and over. I'll show you. Mm -hmm. yes. All right. Acts one eight. Verse six. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? They're still thinking political Messiah. <laughs> I wonder if Jesus is thinking, oh goodness. But he doesn't. He says this. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Alright, question. When Jesus is saying this, are the disciples saved? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit living in them? Yes. yes. When? when Forty saved. days earlier on the first night of the resurrection. So he's saying something else is going to happen. Back up in Acts 1. Verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Now notice this word. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is frequently associated with the phrase, the Father's promise, or the promise of the Father. Jesus is using it here. We're going to see that Peter uses it at Pentecost. Jesus said, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father has promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then later, down in Acts 1.8, he says, But you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, when the Holy Spirit, to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what's the last one? What would that include? Have we reached the uttermost parts of the world? No, but we're getting close. We're awful close. Yeah. Yeah, so when do we need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Now. Right up through to now. You with me? Yes. Now, if anybody was qualified to be witnesses, it was the apostles. They walked with him for three years. They heard him teach. They saw his miracles. They saw him raised from the dead. Uh, they saw him crucified, saw him raised from the dead. They walked with him before the ascension. If anybody was qualified to be witnesses, it was them. And yet he says, don't leave Jerusalem till the Spirit has come upon you. Because the witness that is necessary to them to give is a spiritual witness that eyeball witnessing doesn't get to because it's a matter of dealing with the darkness in the soul. And that takes the Holy Spirit. And if they had to have it, how much more do we, who didn't walk with him for three years, didn't see him raised, and didn't see him ascend? 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. It's never shut down. Why would it? What would be the point? Oh, now we've got the Bible? Okay, so fine. We go off to some people in, in some remote island in the South Pacific uh, who, don't, who live in the Stone Age. We don't need the Holy Spirit to mark through us with power because we have the Bible. Well, they don't. And if you talk to missionaries on the field, even the ones that come from cessationist churches, they'll tell you the Holy Spirit hasn't changed at all. Amen. They see miracles. They see Acts, first uh, 28 chapters of Acts all the time on the mission field. We had missionaries who were with us uh, who our church we went to was cessationist and we had some missionary couple that was in um, Peru uh, and uh, we ha I had them Joan and I had them over for dinner one night when they were back because we wanted to expose our daughters to them oh my goodness mm. to get to where they were you had to take a bus from Lima for three days into the jungle then from there you took a donkey three days further into the jungle and then you went on foot three days from that. Wow. They had healings, they had raising from the dead, they had all kinds of miracles. I said, Glenn, why don't you ever say that when you're in the pulpit? Are you kidding? They cut my support off. You know, they don't believe that. Uh, that's why we're in the basement down in, in this nation. We don't believe that. But you can't do what Jesus calls us to do unless that is going on. That's why apologetics isn't going to work. We have a better... Now, apologetics, I don't mean not cutting it down. Apologetics has its purpose, and it's very important. But in terms of reaching the nation in darkness, this is what has to happen. Okay. Now, look at... Look at Acts 8. Oh, we need to take a break. Well, I was just going to say, that's why each must do their part. Right. Let's take a quick five-minute break.